I don't believe it. This has got to be the most archaic thing that the Lord ever made. Eh? Wow. How are we doing? Not bad. Now, there should be some volume on this, but I'm not getting much volume. So, Seems to be my problem here. Yep. Okay. Hopefully this will pick up the uh, the audio on it. I'm just guessing. We'll find out pretty soon. closer I need to get it to my face okay to start off with today uh, at the very beginning it's not in the notes but it's just a general overview of uh, anatomical uh, terminology some of it you might have had before we start off with the anatomical position as the as the uh, position for uh, labeling all parts gives us a common starting point you notice the person is standing erect, their head is facing forward, that's important. Arms are down at the sides, palms are always facing forward from the anatomical position. And your feet are together, or they could be slightly further apart, but your toes are always facing forward as well. Okay, now I'm on this thing. Okay. All right. Never mind. I don't have one of those here. So that's the and that's a, the starting position. That would be the standard position, so that all the descriptions that we're going to give, whether something is medial or lateral or, or superior inferior, will all be with reference to that starting position, that anatomical position. That way. Different planes of the body. The median plane or mid-sagittal plane is one that divides the body directly into right and left halves. It's termed the median plane or mid-sagittal plane. But then there would be all sorts of other sagittal planes to that. In other words, you're dividing the body into right and left, but not necessarily equal halves. Would be a sagittal, would be the sagittal plane. The coronal plane or frontal plane divides the body into front and back, anterior, posterior. And the transverse plane, as mentioned, would be dividing the body uh, into superior and inferior, upper and lower portions. Don't really use that this, that much, the, the, the uh, plain terminology in, the, in my descriptions. A lot of the time it'll be helpful if you understand the planes, uh, because when you take a look at some diagrams and pictures in books, it will always tell you what, what the, the diagram, uh, the, the plane or the, 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 the view of the diagram is. If you understand the terminology, it will help you understand the picture a little bit better. So the sagittal plane divides the body right and left halves, coronal, front and back, and transverse top and bottom. Okay. Now, some of these are not in the notes, but they're just common terminology that we need to use. And so let's start at the top, and we'll work our way around uh, counterclockwise. If we go way up at the top, you'll see that something would be classified as superficial. That's pretty simple. It's going to be on the perimeter of the structure. In this case, they're looking at a section through, looks like the upper extremity. And you notice the skin would be the most superficial structure found when we're taking a look at it. 
Then they've got something that's intermediate, which would be slightly deeper. In this case, they're looking at the muscles that are in the upper extremity. And then the deepest structure would be the bone found in the upper extremity. So you, superficial, intermediate in the middle, and deep. Pretty straightforward in the terminology when you're going to describe structures. If something is medial, it is closer to the midline of the body. So then the anatomical position with your palms always facing forward, your little fingers will always be on the medial side and your thumbs will always be um, described as being on the lateral side of your hand. Even though you might um, uh, pronate your, your forearm this way, you'll always describe your thumbs as being lateral and your little fingers will always be on the medial side when describing structures in the hand. Same thing with the foot. The big toe will always be on the medial side and the little toe will always be on the lateral side. So medial and lateral. Posterior, anterior, if you go down at the bottom there, pretty straightforward. Posterior is towards the back, or it's sometimes referred to as dorsal. And anterior is towards the front, and it's sometimes referred to as ventral. You can use um, posterior and dorsal, two names for the same description. You, once again, you can use ventral and anterior, two names for the same description. If something is said to be uh, inferior or caudal, it's towards the feet. If something is said to be superior or cranial, it would be towards the head. So when you're looking at some structures, you might describe one as cranial to another or caudal to another, means above or below. So we use the superior or cranial, and we use the terms um, inferior or caudal, sometimes in describing some structures. Relatively. We keep going around the other way. Proximal and distal, normally um, restricted to the... Um, upper and lower extremities when you're talking about structures. If something is proximal, it is closer to the main trunk of the body. And if something is distal, it's further away from the main trunk of the body. And in describing some things, for example, your shoulder would be described as being proximal to your elbow. It's closer to the main trunk. Your elbow would be distal to your shoulder. Your elbow would be proximal to your wrist. Your wrist would be distal to your elbow. And you can figure out the same things for your hip and your knee, your knee and your ankle. Uh, when we take a look at uh, the three phalanges in each of your uh, four medial digits in your hand, there will there'll be a proximal one, a middle one, and a distal one. The further away you go, the more it would be described as distal. The closer to the main trunk of the body, it would be described as proximal. So we have proximal and distal in that terminology. And when we get to the feet and when we get to the hands, we'll use the, the, these terms as well. The dorsal surface of your foot is the top of your foot and the plantar surface of your foot is the sole of the foot. And if we take a look at the hand, the dorsal surface of your hand would be the back of your hand. And the front surface of your hand pointing in the anatomical position would be the palmar surface of the hand. It's the palm of the hand. So we use those terms all the time. And uh, when we get to the hands and when we get to the feet, then we'll, we'll be using them. And they're pretty straightforward. They're pretty self-explanatory. Dorsal surface and palmar surface in the hand dorsal surface of the foot is the top of the foot, plantar surface of the foot is the sole of the foot. So some of those then we would use and uh, we would describe giving us uh, some of the terminology that we're going to use. Okay. And one other thing about movements. Normally if you decrease the angle of a joint it's flexing. So my elbow here is 180 degrees. If I move it to this position and decrease the angle to 90, I have flexed it. And if you increase the angle of a joint, you would have extended it. So from 90 degrees, if I put it back to 180 degrees, I would have extended the elbow. 
at the hip in this position. If I move it up this way, up as far as I can go, I have flexed it. If I move it back here, it's 100. I've gone back to the 180 degree position. I've extended it. Um, and of course, your uh, knee would go the opposite way. You flex your knee by moving it up this way. You would extend your knee by straightening it back to the 180 degree movement. Your shoulder from here, if you move it up this way, you flexed it. And if you move it back down this way, you have extended it. If you move it past the anatomical position back this way, you've extended it even more until sometimes they describe as a little bit further beyond the normal range of movement as hyperextending, moving it back up this way. So if you um, increase the angle of a joint, you normally would be extending the joint. If you decrease the angle of the joint, it's flexing the joint. Abducting and adducting, if you move something in towards the midline of the body, you have adducted it. So if my arms are out like this, and I move them back in this way, I have adducted. If you move them away from, you've abducted. You've moved them with, out this way, that would be abducting. That applies to the upper and the lower extremities. We use the midline of the body as our reference point. Adducting, bringing in, abducting, moving away. When we get to the hands and the feet, the movement of the fingers and the movement of the toes are different. The reference point will now be the midline of the hand, middle finger of the hand, uh, second toe of the foot, and the movement of the fingers and the toes are uh, directed adducting and abducting with respect to that, those slightly different um, uh, starting points, but we'll get to that when we get down to the hands and we get down to the feet, so it's not a problem. Okay. Uh, abducting and adducting the hip, easy way. You move the hip out, you've abducted, you bring it back in, you've adducted, moving into this way. Medial rotation, lateral rotation, if you turn the uh, bone inward this way, rotate it inward, it's medial. If you turn the bone outward, it would be lateral. So medial rotation would be turning it inward. Lateral rotation would be turning it outward. Pronation and supination, I uh, restrict to the movements of the forearm. Pronating is moving the, the uh, forearm, rotating the radius around the ulna this way so that the backs of your hands are now facing forward. Supination is exactly the opposite. It's rolling it back into the anatomical position. Inversion, eversion would be with uh, movement of the ankle. If you consider these to be my feet, my big toes are here, my little toes are here. Inversion of the ankle would be taking the sole of the foot and moving it inward. That would be inversion. Eversion of the ankle would be taking the sole of the foot and moving it outward. So inversion and e <coughs> eversion of the ankle with respect to the direction of the sole of the foot. Inward, the plantar surface inward would be eversion. Plantar surface outward would be. Okay. Once again, these are my feet. Plantar flexing is standing on your toes. Dorsiflexing is rocking back on your heels. So you can plantar flex, dorsiflex, inversion, eversion of the ankle joint, moving it that way. We don't need to worry about plantar flexing and dorsiflexing, inversion, eversion, until we get down there. Um, fairly quickly, we'll get up in the upper extremity. We'll be talking about uh, the movements of um, pronation, supination of the forearm, but they're pretty straightforward and pretty self-explanatory. So that's just the, some of the language we'll use. Once in a while, I might throw something else in, but if, uh, as we describe movements or we describe anatomical structures, but more. This covers most of what, we're, what we were, would be looking at in the form of uh, just the basic fundamental language of, the, of anatomy. And always starting, off with the, always starting off with the anatomical position as your 
common reference point when describing all those different movements. All right. All right. So now we get into some of the structures. Now you see we've, we're going to start off with a look at the skin because the skin covers virtually all of the body. And you notice that I haven't spent much time on it. It's not uh, a uh, something that I've got a lot of detail to. The top layer of our skin is the epidermis. There's the epidermis here. Epidermis made up of a number of series of layers of cells stacked on top of each other. With the top layer of the cells here, the top layers here being uh, dead and keratinized, they have the keratin protein in it, where the bottom layers of the uh, epidermis here are still viable cells uh, that help to replace the sloughed off epidermal uh, top layer of our epidermis. Some areas of the body, epidermis has four layers, and some areas it has five. In the palms of your hand, soles of your feet, that uh, areas that have a, a lot of friction applied to them, we have a kind of a translucent layer, a fifth layer, that helps to give that, those um, areas of the body a little bit more depth in the epidermis of the skin. And below the epidermis, we have the dermis of the skin, which is connective tissue, and you can see all the stuff is in the most of the stuff is going to be located in the layer of the dermis of the skin. We have blood vessels, arteries and veins. We have uh, sweat glands. We have the hair roots of the body, uh, hairs of the body located here. And we would have uh, receptors to be able to pick up things like temperature change and pressure change uh, from the surface of the skin. Well, that's the dermis of the skin, connective tissue found immediately underneath the epidermis. You'll notice that the dermis, top layer of the dermis of the skin isn't flat. It's got these papillae. It has these little bumps. Helps to link together the epidermis to the dermis. Helps to make the two of them uh, kind of cement together a little bit better. And in your fingers, and it will give you your, your fingerprints, and the tips of your fingers will be the ridges de derived from the dermis of the skin. And it'll contain, you can see, arteries and veins, sweat glands, nerves, will be located in the dermis of the skin. Okay. So those are the two layers of the skin, epidermis and the dermis. And, and the function of the skin, fairly straightforward. It's going to provide uh, mechanical protection. It's our first layer of protection for structures that are going to be found deep. It's important in uh, maintaining fluid levels uh, when we get severe burns and you lose layers of your skin, then one of the things they worry about is uh, fluid loss. Uh, because we've got um, blood vessels in them and we can open and close or shut down or open up the blood vessels, we can dilate them or we can constrict them. We can uh, um, vary the, the flow rate of blood to the level of the skin, and in that way we can help to control temperature. It's in a very warm environment. We would open up those vessels, let the warmer blood get to the surface. We could uh, dissipate the heat. Very colder environments, we would close those vessels down and direct the blood towards the core of the body where we can be able then to conserve heat. So there's a method of being able to help in, in, in heat regulation. Uh, in very warm environment, then we have the sweat gland that would secrete perspiration on the surface of the skin that perspiration then would evaporate and that would help to cool. And of course we have receptors for uh, pain and for temperature and pressure would be found mainly, mainly in the dermis of the skin. So those things would be put to the responsibility of the 
of the skin itself. And you see my picture that I put in there is not particularly sophisticated. It's just giving you an idea of the, the various layers. Now, if we go underneath the, level, the dermis of the skin, we get to the sometimes referred to as the hypodermis, or this is the subcutaneous layer of fascia. So we flip our page. And you notice in the layer of the subcutaneous layer here, we have a series of uh, fat cells. So depending upon where in the body you're looking and depending upon the individual, you could have more or less of the of, uh, adipose cells located in that uh, subcutaneous level, this is the superficial fascial level. It's an area for then for storing fat and for storing water. It's going to help insulate for temperature regulation. And of course, the arteries and the veins and the nerves were going to have to pass through that superficial fascial layer in order to again get to the, in this case, in order to get to the dermis layer. The superficial uh, layer, the superficial fascial layer in, in underneath your skin will be a location for a muscle called the platysma, which we might take a look at today if we get that far. And the origin of the breast will be at that level of the superficial fascia, and we'll get, we will get that far today. Now, underneath the superficial fascia will be deep fascia. Here's another look at the same thing. We have the epidermis on the top, then we have the dermis underneath, two layers giving us the skin. Then we have subcutaneous or superficial fascia underneath that. Then underneath that, we have deep fascia. Very little fat found in the deep fascial layer. It almost encases or in, uh, the muscle that's going to be underneath. It allows that muscle then to be able to move fairly freely because the muscle is kind of encased in its own casing. Picture doesn't show it, but you have to realize that nerves and blood vessels also have to pass through the level of the deep fascia in order to get to the level of the superficial fascia. And so there we have an, the, the idea of the, those layers that we were looking at. And here's the deep fascial layer here, and then we have in this particular picture, we've got a muscle that's immediately underneath it. And the deep fascia would then help to encapsulate that muscle and allow that muscle to work independently. It wouldn't be adhering. So that's a look then at the deep fascial layer. And we will get that muscle I talked about, the platysma muscle. It will pick up its origin from this deep fascial layer. And we'll talk about the platysma uh, a little bit today, maybe, if we get that far. We'll come back and take a look at that muscle. Okay. All right. So those are just kind of the layers as we go down. And um, going from more superficial to deep, trying to take a look at the structures that are going to be found at the levels, uh, from the level of the surface of the skin down to the level of the deep fascia. There's the platysma muscle I talked about before. It's going to be at the level of the superficial fascial level. It's a very thin muscle, goes underneath your chin, comes from the deep fascia here that is covering the pectoralis major muscle, comes up underneath your chin, attaches onto the uh, muscle that goes around your mouth, the orbicularis oris muscle goes around and attaches onto the mandible. You can contract that muscle, you can tense the skin underneath your chin. That's the platysma muscle. We mentioned that a couple of times. There's a view of it, very superficial, just underneath the skin. Okay. And its level would be at the, deep, at the superficial fascial level, 
and its, its origin, its, its beginnings, would be attaching to the deep fascia covering the pectoralis major muscle coming up underneath, and then attaching around your mouth muscle, picularis oris muscle, and attaching onto the mandible, your lower jaw. That's the design of the platysma muscle. So first thing we're going to look at superficially on the front surface of the thoracic region will be the breast. Go take a look at this guy here. Uh, the lactiferous glands are found in the breast are modified sweat glands. So those glands, the lactiferous glands don't have a fibrous capsule around them because of their, their, their origin. I'll make a note of that. And if we take a look at the base of the breast, fairly common, fairly routine. It'll go from about the level of the second rib down to the level of the sixth rib, top to bottom, about second rib to sixth rib. On the medial side, it will uh, get very close to the sternal margin, the medial edge of the sternum, uh, sorry, the lateral edge of the sternum. And over on the lateral side, we're going to take the base of the breast over to the mid-axillary line. The mid-axillary line is the midline that you get if you drop a line from the midline of your armpit straight down, that's the mid-axillary line. So that would be about as far over as the base of the breast would go. There is a small component of the breast that kind of follows up along the margin of the pectoral muscles up underneath into the axilla, and that's referred to as the axillary tail. And that picture shows a little bit of the axillary tail coming, tucking itself up underneath the, the axilla. So there's a look at the kind of the, the basic um, design, the basic um, parameters of the base of the breast there. And within the breast yourself, breast itself. Oh. Okay, I don't want to do that. We've got the lactiferous glands. The lactiferous glands are going to be under the right hormonal uh, stimulation, be able to then produce and secrete milk. The glands then would have ducts or tubes that would leave from the gland, and then all those ducts or tubes would then funnel to the nipple of the breast that way. We have a lot of adipose tissue de deposited in the breast. And within the breast itself, running from the deep fascia covering the pectoralis major muscle, and then running through the breast and attaching onto the dermis of the skin would be suspensory ligaments, they're referred to as, sometimes referred to as, I think, Cooper's ligaments, but uh, don't use that term anymore. Suspensory ligaments is a more descriptive term for it, and that will help give support to the breast. So those suspensory ligaments are going to be running through the breast. They're going to attach to the deep fascia covering the pectoralis major, travel forward, and then attach themselves onto the dermis of the skin of the breast itself. Those are suspensory ligaments found there. Now, there is a space that's connective tissue space. doesn't have any fat in it, but it's a connective tissue space. It's called the retromammary space. It's the space between the deep fascia covering the pectoralis major muscle and the breast itself. So that means the breast is not anchored to the front surface of the thoracic cavity. That means the breast can move around. It is free to move on the front surface of the, of the thorax because of that connective tissue little gap between the deep fascia covering the pec major and the breast itself. It's referred to as the retromammary space. Very loose connective tissue in there, very little fat, but it does allow then the breast some ability to move on the front surface of the thoracic cavity. How are we doing? Oh, not too bad. Mm. Okay. 
Next step. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going. This is not in the notes. I'm going to backtrack and make sure that and kind of uh, build up the circulatory system because we're going to talk about the uh, circulation to the front of the thorax. We're going to end up with a whole series of small arteries. It might be a good idea if you understood where those arteries came from in the first place. And so I'm going to backtrack it a little bit. It's not in the notes. It's going to just kind of fill. I'm going to fill it in now so that we can then go and talk about some of those smaller arteries. So we have the heart here, and we know that the aorta is the major artery coming out of the left ventricle, pumping and distributing uh, oxygenated blood. We take the arch of the aorta coming around, it will give off three branches. The brachiocephalic artery is the first one coming off. And you notice the brachiocephalic artery will then divide into a right common carotid artery, which is going to travel up the right side of your neck. It then also branches off to a right subclavian artery, which is going to travel down uh, across the right side. It will then go underneath the clavicle. That's how we'll get the term subclavian to it. And then we'll follow that subclavian artery in a minute or two. Second artery coming off will be the left common carotid artery. It's going to parallel the right common carotid artery, except it's on the opposite side. It does exactly the same thing as the right common will do. And then the third one coming off is the left subclavian artery, which will dump down and give us the arterial supply to the left side, the left upper extremity, the left part of the thorax. And uh, the left subclavian and the right subclavian are going to do exactly the same thing. So once you pass the division of that brachiocephalic artery coming off, and then the right common carotid right subclavian and the left common carotid left subclavian are going to be going, doing ex exactly the same thing. So there isn't any reason to describe uh, right and left. Well, usually, in most of the pictures that you see, it's the right side that they show, but the left side will be exactly the same. So that's where we're coming from. And what we want to do particularly is take a look at that subclavian. So in this picture, you can see, well, once again, we're on the right side. We've already taken the brachiocephalic artery and divided it into a common carotid artery and a subclavian. The subclavian, you can see, is going to go underneath the clavicle. In this picture, they've cut the clavicle so that you can see the direction of the subclavian artery. Once the clavicle passes the level of the under the once the subclavian artery passes the underneath the clavicle and over top of the first rib between those two bones, then that artery changes its name. It's no longer referred to as the subclavian. It now becomes the axillary artery. It's the same artery, except now it's traveling in the axillary region, the armpit region, right? And you notice here that they have given the axillary artery three divisions to it. Uh, and we'll explain that in a second or two. If you take the axillary artery down to about the level, the bottom level of the teres major muscle, then the continuation of that artery down will no longer be referred to as the axillary artery. It's now referred to as the brachial artery. Same artery, but now it's traveling in the brachial region, which is the arm region. Now this particular picture has the subclavian, the axillary, and the brachial with absolutely no branches coming from it. It's, they've stripped them all off. And at this point, not a bad idea to, to, to make a reference to it because it will be used a little later on. You notice this muscle, the pectoralis minor muscle, which we will look at. Pectoralis minor muscle was going to come from the ribs and come up and attach onto the coracoid process of the scapula. And you notice the artery goes underneath the pectoralis minor muscle. So what they've done, just for their own, just in order to try to compartmentalize it and remember it, they take the axillary artery and they divide it into three parts. 
they have a part of the axillary artery which is above the pectoralis minor muscle, see the first part. They have a part of the, pectora, of the axillary artery that goes behind the pectoralis minor muscle, that's the second part. And they have a part of the axillary artery that goes below the level of the pectoralis minor, that's the third part. And as it turns out, very nicely, the first part of the, of the axillary artery has one branch coming from it. The second part of the axillary artery, as it goes behind the pectoralis minor muscle, has two branches from it. And the third part of the axillary artery be after the pectoralis minor muscle has three branches to it. So it helps you to kind of remember the one, two, th the branches coming off the axillary artery. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit when we're look, looking at some other things. So there's the axillary artery. It's going to be a continuation of the subclavian. On the right side, the subclavian was a split of the brachiocephalic. On the left side, the subclavian came off of the arch of the aorta by itself. So we're going to track then the, the, the uh, pathway of the axillary artery down and, and look at some of its branches. Okay, so that's where we're coming from. Now here we have the picture, of now they put in all the branches to it. And what we're looking at will be the branches that we want to take a look at that are going to help to supply the front of the thoracic region. That's where we're, that's where we're looking. First one up, I think, that I've got is one called the lateral thoracic artery. And you see the lateral thoracic artery is coming off and it's kind of coming down here on the lateral margin of the pectoralis minor muscle. So the lateral thoracic artery will be a major arterial supply to the front of the thoracic region to the breast region. So we'll pick that one up, coming down this way. And it's the lateral thoracic artery is one of the two arteries that come off of the second division of the axillary artery. So it's referred to as coming off that portion of the axillary artery that is passing as it passes behind the pectoralis minor muscle. So that's one, that's a lateral thoracic and if you can see that that's gonna to help to supply the front of the thoracic region. The second branch coming off of the um, uh, second portion of the axillary artery is called the thyroacromial artery or thyroacromial trunk. Up there, haven't got a clicker, haven't got a point. I'll get one for next time. Didn't realize there wasn't one in here, there. It's this guy here. Now some of these, you can see, are going to go traveling over to the acromial region, the deltoid region, over laterally. But the one we're interested in is the one that kind of comes more immediately, it's the pectoral branch. So and I've labeled that myself. The pectoral branch of the thoracoacromial artery will also be a, an arterial supply to the front of the thoracic region. And both of those, the lateral thoracic and the pectoral branch and the pectoral branch of the thoracoacromial artery, are both coming off the second division of the, of the um, acromial artery. That's the artery as it passes uh, underneath the pectoralis minor muscle. So you can see those two are going to be, uh, give us a fairly good supply to the front of the thoracic region. Okay, so off the thoracoacromial artery, we have a pectoral branch. And off of the axillary artery, a, a fairly significant branch all by itself, that would be the lateral thoracic artery and they're both going to give us then good supply to the front of the thoracic region. All right. Let me go this way. Now, in this one we're looking at, once again, the right side. So we've got the brachiocephalic artery coming up that way. We've got a dividing going up to give us a common carotid on the right side and a subclavian. Coming off the subclavian artery, 
and traveling down, paralleling the uh, lateral margin of the sternum on the inside of the thoracic cavity is an artery called the internal thoracic artery. See the internal thoracic artery up there. Sometimes it used to be called the mammary artery, but now it's referred to as the internal thoracic artery. The internal thoracic artery is coming off of the subclavian, so that's the artery before it has gone underneath the clavicle and over top of the first rib. And you can see then the internal thoracic artery is going to travel down the inside of the thoracic cage. Going to it will parallel as it goes down the um, lateral margin of the sternum. Of course, always remember, you've got one on the other side as well. Everything that's, will be duplicated, right? Okay. Now, if we take that internal thoracic artery, here from this section, there is my internal thoracic artery there. Sternum's there, internal thoracic arteries traveling down on the inside. Internal thoracic artery will give us basic two suppliers. First of all, the internal thoracic artery by itself will go between your ribs and help to supply the front of the thoracic region. All by itself, it's going to give perforating branches that go between ribs and help to supply the front, the anterior of the thorax. That's one. And you notice that another branch coming off the internal thoracic artery is an artery which will travel between your ribs from anterior to posterior coming around this way. That's our anterior intercostal artery. Traveling between your ribs will be intercostal arteries. Actually, and there are two of them. One is anterior, so it's coming from the internal thoracic artery and it's traveling anterior around this way. The intercostal artery by itself will give off perforating branches which supply the front of the thorax as well. So you're looking at really two suppliers here. The internal thoracic artery all by itself giving off perforating branches and the internal thoracic through its anterior intercostal giving off perforating branches. And both of those are then are going to help to supply the front of the thoracic region, the breast region, coming around this way. And those are the primary suppliers. Now, here's where you run into a problem sometimes. And every time you grab a different picture, somebody's got a slightly different idea of what they want to include and what they don't want to include. So let's just to explain this picture. You notice coming down the back of the, the, the vertebrae, we have the thoracic aorta traveling down, this guy here. Well, the thoracic aorta is going to give off branches which will go between your ribs from the back around to the front. They'll give off posterior intercostal arteries. And you notice the posterior intercostal arteries will connect with the anterior intercostal. So there's an anastomosis, there's a connection or a linking between the arterial supply coming from the front through branches off the internal thoracic and the posterior intercostal coming around from the back through branches off of the thoracic aorta. Now clearly this particular author, this particular de uh, person decided that, well, I think that I'm going to include some of this posterior intercostal arterial supply to help to supply the more posterior or lateral aspect of the thoracic region over here a little more. My notes didn't do that. I stopped at this point here. So sometimes when the pictures go up, sometimes the description on the picture will not be exactly the same as the description in the book. Depends upon 
the author depends upon where you want to stop, how much you want to include. So sometimes there'll be a little bit of a disconnect that way. Uh, not to worry, I, I take my questions from the material that's presented in the book, not from all the different sources that I can put up here, because they might be slightly different in their, de in their description. But just to, just to give you an idea, that's, that's what they've tried to do here and explaining that. Yeah. Yes. Anterior is going to come from the internal thoracic artery, this one. So you end up with two supplies, one from the internal thoracic artery going forward backward, and one from the thoracic aorta coming backward forward. And the two of them meet and they connect each, with each other. They're going to run in between your ribs and they'll give arterial supply to those intercostal space. And you have intercostal muscles and other structures found in between each of your ribs. So that'll give you your arterial supply that way. Let's see what else I've got here. I've got some other pictures. So that, there's another view of the same thing. Gives you the idea that there are that lateral thoracic artery up there is going to give off branches which are going to help to supply the front of the thoracic region. We've got our internal thoracic artery coming down on the inside of the thoracic cage, right, just paralleling the lateral margin of the sternum. It's going to give off perforating branches that will go in between your ribs and help to supply the front region. The other aspect of it is that internal thoracic will generate anterior intercostals, which are going to do the same thing. They're going to help to mirror these perforating branches that have come off the in internal thoracic artery all by itself. Okay. Now what that one doesn't show is are those, what that one doesn't show are the pectoral branches coming off that thoracochromial trunk. Uh, but this one tries to. This is another look at the same thing. Once again, we're looking at the lateral thoracic artery coming off of the axillary, giving us kind of a arterial supply here, more on the lateral side. We're looking at those pectoral branches coming off the thoracochromial trunk, these ones here. We have the internal thoracic artery coming down this way with its perforating branches, helping to supply the front. And you notice this picture doesn't have anything to do with, um, uh, what was I going to say? No, no, I haven't even talked about that. You know, this picture, because I think it's the same one that I used before. You notice this picture has that posterior intercostal one also giving a supply? Because it's the same author that had the, the previous picture where I was looking at that posterior intercostal. Yes, ma'am? Comes from the subclavian artery. There. In my pointer. There's the brachiocephalic dividing into common carotid and subclavian, and off the subclavian, the internal thoracic coming down this way. And then the lateral thoracic comes this way. This one, that is the thoracochromial trunk, but they haven't given us any branches coming off of it, right? In that particular view. Yeah. 
yes, they will. There'll, there'll be an anastomosis. They don't just stop like this. There will be a connector between the two. Yes, that's going to happen all sorts of places in areas around a lot of the joints of the body. You'll get a rich, fairly collateral circulation around most of the joints, and that's referred to as anastomosis, where the arterial supply kind of overlap each other in that fashion. Yes. Uh, now the subclavian artery does come in parts, but I've, I haven't, I didn't mention it. The, the artery that I mentioned that came in parts was the axillary artery. That's after, after the subclavian. They do take the subclavian and divide it into parts, but I've never, I've never put it in the book. Um, where was I? The axillary artery is the one that's going to be divided into three parts. And they use the pectoralis minor muscle as the division. So if it's above the pectoralis minor, it's the first part. If it's right behind the minor, it's the second part. And if it's below, then it's the third part. So coming off the, pectoral coming off the axillary artery up here, there is one small artery that comes off. It helps to um, supply the spaces between the first and second rib. It's called the superior or supreme thoracic. Now this thing doesn't want to work. Okay. Oh, it's just slow, was it? Where was I? There you notice in that picture, if you notice way up at the top there where it says superior thoracic artery, the superior thoracic is the first branch, is the only branch that comes off the first division of the axillary. It's not in the book, you don't need to worry about it. The uh, thoracochromial artery or trunk sometimes it's referred to and the lateral thoracic are the two that come off the second part of the axillary artery and down here we'll get to it but there are two arteries that come off that go around the head of the humerus anterior and posterior humeral circumflex so that's two and there is the where to go the subscapular artery which I haven't mentioned goes back behind the scapula, that's the third one. So off the third part of the axillary artery, there are three branches, anterior, posterior, humeral, circumflex, and subscapular. Off the second part of the axillary artery, there are two branches, thoracochromial trunk and lateral thoracic. And off the first part of the axillary artery, there's one branch, it's called the superior thoracic artery. That's how they get the divisions, and that's how you try to remember where those arteries are coming from, based on that. And it's another, another look at the same thing. Okay. Next step. And I'm just, uh, just going to throw this up and introduce it. This is a really schematic look at the lymphatic system. It won't be in the book. It's one of those ones where I'm backing it up again so that you have an idea of where things come from. That's a real schematic look at the lymphatic system. We don't do the lymphatic system in 2031, so it's not introduced in that fashion. It, the lymphatic system is a secondary circulatory system that parallels the uh, veins artery circulatory system, basically parallels and, and flows with the, vein, the venous system. The idea of the lymphatic system is that it, it will absorb interstitial fluid, fluid that sits between cells. A lot of that fluid, the fluid comes from the vascular system, a lot of it is reabsorbed into the vascular system, but that part that isn't reabsorbed into the vascular system will be absorbed into 
our smallest division of the lymphatic system, that's the lymphatic capillary, which would allow that interstitial fluid to be picked up, fluid that sits and pools between cells. So we end up with a series of capillaries of the lymphatic system. They will get grouped together as we make our way back to the heart, and we get then lymphatic vessels. You notice the lymphatic vessels, like veins, they're going to have valves in them, so it helps to, in the direction of the flow of the lymph. It won't be able to go backwards. It only, can only go one way. <laughs> then scattered throughout the body, various areas will have lymph nodes. And the idea is that that lymph that's traveling in these lymphatic vessels will filter through the lymph node. Lymph node will be lined with cells that are going to be able to destroy any pathogens, any viruses, bacteria that have been picked up in the lymphatic fluid coming around this way. So we destroy that or clean up the lymph by having it pass through the lymph nodes. And the vessels then that are able then to take the lymph towards the nose are referred to as afferent vessels. Once the lymph goes through the node and comes out, the vessels leaving the lymph node are referred to as efferent vessels. And then eventually, keep in mind this is really schematic, then the lymphatic, the lymphatic flow, both right side and left side of the body, are going to be dumped back into the circulatory system, into the venous system, just about where the major veins dump back into the heart. So we're then able then to take the fluid that originally came from a fil filtrate of plasma, we're now able then to kind of clean it up and then dump it back into the circulatory system again so it circulates around. That's the basic design then of the lymphatic system. And we have then a series of these lymph nodes located throughout the body. And what we're going to look at next time will be the distribution of these lymph nodes located in the axillary region, a fairly important area of the body, a uh, series of lymph nodes located there. And we'll take a look at where they are located relative to the uh, vessels located in the, in, the, in the breast and axillary region. Okay. So that's, that's, our, that's our goal for the next time. This is a very schematic look at the way the lymphatic system works within the body. And just one other thing. You notice in the picture here the green part. So the lymph that's from the right hand, the right forearm, the right arm, the right part of the thorax, the right side of the head, all that lymph from that part of the body will be drained into the vascular system on the right side. And the lymph that's coming from the right and left lower extremities from the thoracic region from the left hand, forearm, arm, thorax, left side of the head, all of that lymph will be eventually drained back in by a major uh, duct or tube over on the left side of the body. So that's not a simple 50-50 um, share in the direction and the flow of lymph. It's, it didn't get divided up that way. This area here shows what we're going to end up on the right side. It'll drain this portion and all the rest of the body is going to be drained back here over on the left side. What we're going to do is establish a right around here, the beginnings of a major thoracic ductor tube, and then that'll travel up this way. This ductor tube here will have taken the lymph from both lower extremities and taken the lymph from around the level of the abdomen, and eventually it'll track up here, and then we'll take vessels from here and link them up, vessels from here come down and link them up, and then dump that lymph into the venous system just before that venous system empties into the heart on the left side. Okay. But we'll try that next time. All right. We're good.
I see I have to, have to get out of here somehow. Yes. No, the, the, the point I was going to make was that you'll notice that within the, some of the slides that are going to be presented, hang on, hang on, some of the slides are going to be presented, there'll be, there will be more material presented in the slide than will be found in the book. But you'll be responsible for the material that's presented in the book. So if it's found on the slide, then you would be responsible for it. But as you notice, as an example, that posterior intercostal artery wasn't mentioned in the book as an arterial supply, so I wouldn't have included that as a one of the selections on a, on a multiple choice question. Yeah, I can't take everything out of the slides. I mean, I got I put the slides up because they appear to they show a lot of good stuff. You will find if you go about four or five more pages along, then I have listed the three divisions of the axillary artery. They'll be there somewhere uh, later on, but they're there. Hang on for a second. I got to get the hell out of this thing here. <laughs> <laughs>